I don't know if you've ever had a deep, deep burden to see somebody saved, but this is what it looks like. Uh, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses, so maybe grab your Bible. We can read along. But Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises the uh, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. This is a burden. Uh, in simple terms, Paul is saying that if it were possible for him to surrender his own salvation, to guarantee the salvation of his countrymen, his relatives, literally, those who he shares blood with, the Israelites, uh, he would do it. Now think about that. That is love and desire for someone else's ultimate best good. And to legitimately express an interest, if possible, to even spend eternity himself separated from Christ, accursed, um, forever in hell apart from God, if he knew that it meant that his countrymen, according to the flesh, Israel, could be saved. Now that is a burden. Uh, I have to confess that I, I, I don't know that I could say that, uh, really. You know, that is a huge statement. And I don't, and I think Paul is making sure we understand that he means it. Notice in verse one, basically with kind of three sort of, uh, three statements, he sort of confirms the legitimacy of the desire of his heart in this regard, the genuine burden of his heart. I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, it's like he is saying, verily, 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 I say, kind of a thing. He is absolutely laying out there where his heart is at in regard to his deep and abiding love for Israel. Now, Paul, of course, we generally think of Paul, and, and rightly so, as an apostle to the Gentiles. He refers to himself as this. But when we go back to his conversion, and he's with Ananias, and, and the scales fall from his eyes, and uh, and such, uh, we, we want to remember that Ananias uh, was told by the Lord himself that Paul or Saul at that point would be uh, was a chosen vessel and would be his instrument uh, to uh, stand before uh, Gentiles and Israel and kings and, and such. And the idea is that he was going to have a very expansive ministry, although his focus was, was clearly on, on Gentiles and planting churches among the Gentiles and that kind of thing. But you can't read the book of Acts without literally, from the minute Paul begins to serve the Lord in ministry, he's, he goes out and begins to share the gospel, the first place he goes. And very, very often when we see him go to a new place, there is this statement that seems to always, not always, but just about always connected with uh, with his, um, his evangelistic pursuits. And he went to the synagogue of the Jews. Uh, and and he, he begins his ministry in every town, practically, in, in that respect. And so even though he knew his calling specifically, particularly to uh, to those who were outside of Israel, outside the commonwealth, uh, one of the uh, most wonderful passages dealing with this uh, is in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to get there someday in our Sunday morning study on in Ephesians, but where Paul talks about the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been brought down in Christ. 
uh, the idea that those who were once afar off are now brought near. This this idea of of his ministry to those, but with the understanding that it is among his own people that the promises were made, and his desire to see them saved, uh, his deep burden to see them saved, uh, is is quite evident in the way he uh, begins to move into this next section of scripture. Now Romans chapters nine through eleven uh, really kind of riding on the on the introduction that would be found in chapter 8, deals with um, some uh, very, very uh, high ideas, uh, some very deep and uh, meaningful, rich, and difficult, in some places, ideas, uh, both to understand and also maybe even to embrace. And so in some ways, um, as we talk about this, these, these few first verses here in chapter 9, uh, it's it's uh, it's kind of a bit of an introduction to what is to follow. Uh, it is in these three chapters that we uh, we see some of Paul's uh, most expansive. Well, we do see Paul's most expansive description uh, of the idea of God's sovereignty and that kind of thing, and an election in that, and also in in connection, direct connection with that, we also see a lot about the nation of Israel. Uh, both in terms of ethnically, nationally, but also in terms of spiritual Israel, as is uh, spoken of here in the coming verses. Um, so these are some ideas that are going to require us to to spend some time thinking about uh, breaking apart and, and beginning to to try and dig in deeply to these ideas. But it starts, and this is very significant to me, that it starts with a couple of very important ideas here in chapter 9. Of course, again, chapter 9 is built on chapter 8 and this idea of nothing separating us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is because who he foreknew, he ultimately brings through this chain of, again, this golden chain of redemption, ultimately uh, to glorification and such. We 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 under uh, well we 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 do our best to understand these these lofty principles that lay the foundation for what now follows in chapters nine through eleven. Chapters nine through eleven again are difficult and 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 very very rich and meaningful, but oftentimes are uh, sort of scary to believers because again we talk about uh, God's sovereignty, we talk about election, these ideas. These are things that. Um, frighten a lot of people. The, the questions that surround it are naturally begged by the subject. And so it causes some to really just maybe avoid altogether some of these ideas and, and, and uh, concepts in these chapters. But let me suggest to you a couple things in this regard. First off, we never want to skip what God has to say. Uh, if we don't understand it, we want to continue to study. We want to pray the Holy Spirit would help us to understand it more fully uh, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, as we do our best to make the, the most comprehensive uh, case or understanding for an idea uh, that we find in Scripture. We don't want to shy away. We want to dig in further so that we might fully, more fully understand. It's not always easy to do, granted, but we definitely want to do that. We want to make that our practice. We definitely don't want to make our practice the idea that I'll just skip that and move on. It's not important or, or I just don't want to have to deal with what it might say. That's not honest. You know, we want to make sure that we are honest with the Scripture and we let God say what He says with the Bible, the Word of God, say what it says. Um, the other thing is that when it comes to questions about, uh, or some of the, about some of the ideas revolving around the idea of election and foreknowledge and predestination, these ideas, um, as a believer, even if we can't get our mind around some of the ideas, and I would submit to you that we can't really get our mind around some of these ideas, uh, by way of uh, a little bit of, of just reiterating for some who have heard me talk about this and for those who have not heard me talk about this, let me give a bit of a spoiler, that I am, uh, I am of the belief that the Bible fully, pervasively, clearly teaches the sovereignty and the sovereign election of God. 
uh, in regard to believers in that. But I also believe that the, very clearly the Bible teaches. I would submit to you that the Bible is explicitly clear in the same to the same degree that man also has a legitimate responsibility to respond. Uh, and if he does not, there is, of course, the penalty for that. Uh, there is the blessed richness that comes with coming to Christ, but there is a legitimate responsibility and consequence for not coming to Christ that is legitimate because it does require the person to respond. Um, uh, people who take, you know, um, you know, uh, one end of the spectrum or the other on this, I don't want to say extreme because it's not extreme, but I mean, people can take extreme views on these, but, but even just a general belief in these things would often lead one to land either far on one side or far on the other. We, uh, sometimes, uh, I think rightly, but, but it, it might be a little bit simplistic in, in, in some conversations to say that this is generally defined uh, as Calvinism and Arminianism, uh, questions of God's sovereign grace versus man's responsibility, these kinds of ideas. These touch on and begin to open the conversation about these two very, very uh, seemingly polar opposite perspectives. And I don't, I don't take sort of the middle view on this just to sort of sound agreeable. Uh, I really do believe that a very, very strong case is made for both of these ideas, that, that God is fully sovereign, but yet man is somehow within that legitimately responsible uh, to, um, to, to respond to the gospel. And again, there's a consequence when someone doesn't. So, um, so having said that, for a believer, from a believer's perspective, the other thing that I would say we want to consider as we move into these questions and these ideas is that sovereignty, the sovereignty of God should, should, should feel to a believer like a warm blanket. It is that sovereignty and that, uh, that, 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 that God-based, founded, and worked out uh, thing of salvation that, that, that rests upon his faithfulness and what he's accomplished in Christ and what is, uh, all of this should cause us to rest and to understand that we are safe and secure in the hands of the Lord. Uh, in this, I would depart strongly from an Arminian perspective where one could lose their salvation. I, I know that many people do wrestle with this. I, I've recently had conversations like this and they're legitimate. And, and the, and the questions that surround, revolve around it, are things that require us to think about and to work out and to go to Scripture and let Scripture direct our understanding of this. Um, but I, I do think that the Scriptures are clear from my perspective. Again, with respect to other views on this, I, I do believe that the Scriptures teach because the work of Christ is finished, and if a believer is in Christ, then they are in Christ. And as Christ said, no one can snatch them out of his hands or out of his Father's hands. Uh, we read this in John's Gospel. So, um, so, so the idea of... God's sovereignty shouldn't be seen as this terrifying thing in a, you know in a very real sense for a believer we should understand it as a foundation upon which we rest and sleep soundly in our salvation so uh, with that we're going to go ahead and move into some of these things in the days to come as we make our way through this study but let me just again key in today uh, really just on these first uh, five verses or so again Paul in verses one and two uh, expresses that he is, being completely serious, and he is telling the truth as best as he possibly can from the depth of his heart. His desire is to see his kinsman, Israel, saved. And he would even be willing to give up his own salvation for it. As a matter of fact, he is such experiencing such great sorrow or great heaviness for them. 
he is experiencing constant grief whenever he thinks about his kinsmen. That doesn't mean he was constantly just grieving all the time, but every time, likely what is in view here is that every time he thought of his kinsmen according to the flesh, every time he went to a synagogue to preach the gospel to his fellow Jews, every time he would uh, stand in judgment by them and, and, and such, he would be grieving for them. Uh, ultimately to know the Lord. As a matter of fact, there's one episode where Paul uh, lashes out at at uh, the high priest in that, and he's rebuked for it. And he sort of says, well, I didn't know you're the high priest and that kind of thing. But whether he did or not, uh, clearly this person was a person in authority. And I have to wonder if the reason he was so frustrated with this person is because this person was one of the key reasons why uh, those in Israel were not believing in their Messiah, Jesus. And so there is just this uh, this oozing of desire to see. Uh, that's gross. But this this pervasive, all-encompassing desire to see his kinsmen according to the flesh, his countrymen, Israel. Uh, and in verse 4, he says, to whom pertain the adoption? Now, he begins to talk about uh, uh, Israel and the benefits that they had, uh, have, really. The irony is rich in the fact that they have been given such tremendous privilege and benefit, being singled out and called by God uniquely as his chosen people. <clears throat> Yet, for all of that and all of the benefits and blessings that came upon them, they have rejected Jesus. And this remains true today, Israel nationally speaking. Many Jews have come to Christ. They've become, you know, we use terms like completed Jew or Messianic Jew or something like this. But what we mean is there are many uh, uh, Israelites who have, over the years, many Hebrews have come and believed in Yeshua HaMashiach, the, the Jesus the Messiah, the, the, the anointed of God, uh, the one whose very name speaks of the idea of God being with us. And so um, Emmanuel and this idea... Uh, and so we, 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 we recognize that there are some Jews that have gotten saved, and this is a, a, a rich, beautiful blessing to see. But nationally speaking, ethnic Hebrew Israel uh, has almost entirely rejected Christ throughout the centuries. Um, when Messiah came, when Jesus came, he literally convicted them of their rejection of him. Um, you know, uh, Luke 16, the idea of, uh, of Israel, uh, Luke uh, 19, I'm sorry, Luke 19, where he is weeping over Jerusalem because they did not recognize this, their day, the day of his arrival to present himself, according to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, coming into Jerusalem, riding in, your king comes, riding on a colt, a, foal, a donkey, the foal of a donkey in this. The idea of, of his arrival, very specifically as, as was prophesied in Scripture, uh, Jesus intentionally fulfills it on that very day, having forsaken other days where they tried to make him king. This day was specifically ordained of God, uh, the day, the very day that Daniel predicted um, in, in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Jesus rides into town and presents himself as Messiah. And the people recognized what he was doing. And, and, and many of them raised their hands and their voices, crying out, Hosanna, save now, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the day, truly, that the Lord had made. Uh, this was the day of the Messiah's arrival. But sure enough, as we read the scriptures, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that just a week later, uh, those who were yelling Hosanna, uh, so many of them were crying out, crucify him under the direction and coercion of the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. And so, you know, Paul, and it's, having said all that, it's important to remember that by the time we get to uh, the book of Romans, Paul has been walking with the Lord for many, many years, but he started 
as one of those who wanted to see Jesus killed. Um, We don't know for sure, but it's entirely possible that Paul was among those who condemned Jesus. Uh, He was a young Pharisee when he ultimately came to faith, but it is entirely possible that he was in proximity right there along with the Pharisees and scribes who wanted to see Jesus um, uh, destroyed. Certainly when he went about uh, the beginning of his uh, rampage uh, against Christians and this kind of thing, it was with a fire of hatred for all of those who would call in the name of this Galilean carpenter who was uh, causing the children of Israel to depart from the faith of their fathers and this kind of thing, which again brings us back here to verse 4, the benefits that Israel had. In spite of those benefits, she rejected her. But listen to the benefits that they were given. Uh, Israelites, Israel by itself, just the, the name Israel speaks of one who is governed by God. It was the name given to Jacob, which whose name means heel catcher. But when he ultimately was broken by God and began to walk with him in, in, in at least some level of surrender and submission, God gave him the name Israel, which speaks of the idea of being governed by God. So from their very, um, really from the beginning of the patriarchs, the father of those uh, of those sons who would become the nation of Israel, uh, their father, Jacob, uh, who again, whose father was Isaac and whose father was Abraham before him. That becomes extremely important as we make our way through the rest of these chapters. Um, but Jacob is, is, is very name, Israel, uh, speaks of a nation who has been governed by God. Not, not like the Gentiles, but these are a people who are selected by God to be his chosen people. To whom pertain the adoption? Okay, the adoption. That's a very tender word. Uh, it can have legal implications. The idea that, uh, well, for example, I've mentioned in the past we adopted our daughter. Well, um, on the one level, that meant that legally she was brought into our family, given our name. She is now an heir of our of our empire, such as it is. Um, but uh, but anyway, so she she now is our child. She is in our family. That is true legally. But adoption also carries with it a very tender side to it as well. The idea that um, that this person has been brought into something, has been made family, has been uh, brought to be a child of a father, um, whereas in some case, uh, a child may not have had a father. Um, the Gentiles were those who were without God in the world, we're told. And so here, uh, now being brought into uh, the family of God, this is an important thing. But Israel has always been that. From the time Abraham was called in Genesis 12, uh, we, we uh, or in Genesis, uh, yeah, 12, where, where Abraham has given these promises, this idea that he's brought near, he is following the Lord in this. He's, he's been brought out of the Gentiles and now is uniquely the beginner of this, of this uh, group of people, uh, Israel, who would be adopted into the family of God. And they remain as chosen people. And they are, as we'll see later on in these chapters, the vine upon which we have been grafted. And so they are the beginners, the progenitors of this whole thing. And so to, to them pertain the adoption. The glory, the glory. Now think of the promises that were made to Israel. Promises are mentioned here in this list as well. But the glory speaks of not only the glory of their kingdom as it had been under you know David and Solomon and such, um, uh, but but also there is an ongoing understanding that Israel will be in glory ultimately when Messiah rules and reigns from Jerusalem. Uh, there is much to be said about the glory. Uh, of course, we could talk about the glory that they not only. Um, uh, you know, rose to uh, as as the children of God in the Old Testament. But what about the glory they experienced? 
Uh, for example, like the Shekinah glory, the idea of seeing God present among them in their midst, something that would would, would certainly connect with the idea of adoption uh, under the glory of God, their father. And so, of course, they didn't think of him as father per se, but that's essentially what Paul is saying. They were brought in as the children of God. Um, the covenants, the covenants, think about the covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, both to his descendants, that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sands of the sea, uh, but also think about the land that was promised them in the covenant. Again, Genesis 12, 15, 17, uh, and throughout the Old Testament, we see this constant drawback to the idea of the land and coming back to the land, and they were promised the land and so on. Uh, this becomes very important when we get into eschatology as well. This becomes prominent uh, in the last days as well. But the promises, what about the law, the covenant, right? This is also mentioned here uh, as uh, in, in, uh, in the next thing after covenants, the idea of the law, the Mosaic covenant. We talked about dispensationalism in church uh, a couple of weeks ago in a real barn-burning message. I'm sure everybody was thrilled about that kind of technical Thing I, I actually am excited by it, but but anyway, well, that's neither here nor there now. But the idea of the of the covenants being given to Israel, one of those was the Mosaic covenant, um, the idea of the law. God gave the law to Israel. Uh, Paul would refer to this idea in 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 Romans chapter two when he talked about you know we answered the question the rhetorical sort of question what benefit is there to be a Jew then. Well, much in every way, to them was given the oracles of God. That's one of the rich blessings that they received as the, as the people of God. And so they're given the law uniquely, specifically. No other nation was given that. They alone were given uh, this, which, of course, uh, includes the idea of the fact that God actually spoke to Moses on the mountain. God spoke to them. Uh, and, and not only just directly to Moses, but went on to have prophets speak to them throughout their history and this kind of thing. They uniquely had God speak to them. The service of God, the service of God there would speak of the temple service, the idea that they were given a priesthood, a group of people that were allowed to actually uh, minister to the Lord in his physical manifestation on the earth during the time of the tabernacle and in the early years of the temple, uh, up until Ezekiel when the glory departs. And so for a long time, uh, leading up to the exile and that, so for a long time, the presence of God manifestly dwelt. Uh, among the people of Israel. And there were priests that would go in, the Levitical line would go in, and they would serve and minister in that area. And one of them, uh, every year, would get a chance to actually go into the Holy of Holies and serve the Lord there, literally going in to serve the Lord there in that most holy place. Um, uh, the promises, we kind of alluded to that already, the promises that were given to Israel, both in terms of the immediate, the promises that God gave them for faithfulness and obedience, and they would experience the blessings. Again, this picture of the nation divided into uh, crying out back and forth from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, the blessings and cursings of God, and, and, and the blessings for obedience, the cursings for disobedience, but the promises were given. God clearly expressed the benefits and, the, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the judgments that would come for obedience and then disobedience. And so the promises were given. But what about even kingdom promises? Again, there is a messianic promise, the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, who is mentioned here as well as we wrap up uh, in verse 5. But there is this messianic hope, a promise that is yet future off down the road. The disciples asked about this in Acts chapter 1. Will you then restore the kingdom? As Jesus reiterated throughout his ministry, most especially when it came to um, his description in, in, uh, in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. 
Um, and so there was a promise yet to be fulfilled of a kingdom, a thousand-year reign, a kingdom uh, that, that ultimately is a fulfillment of the promises to the nation of Israel. Of course, as the church, we get to participate in that, but we should always remember that that promise is first made to Israel, nationally and ethnically. Uh, of whom are the fathers, verse 5, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, ultimately the patriarchs in this. And then from there we get the, you know, King David and such. We have these fathers of the nation. Abraham, of course, the most prominent. And again, he figures prominently elsewhere as we continue through these chapters. But they, again, uniquely were given uh, the fathers who were the foundation of, of their nation in that. Whom according to the flesh, from whom according to the flesh, Christ came, the ultimate uh, blessing of the nation of Israel is that, in fact, their Messiah came. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, came from Israel. John would say in chapter 1, he came first to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God, those who were born not of flesh nor of the will of man, uh, but rather of God. And so um, we see the Messiah has ultimately come through the lineage of uh, of Abraham, really all the way back to to Adam, but it was specifically through Abraham and the nation that came from him that Messiah ultimately comes. Uh, uh, the Christ came, the anointed, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. It is a very, very clear declaration of Paul's understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ himself, uh, Paul's own understanding of this. Amen. Yes, let it be so. It's a, it's a, a word that sort of implies that what Paul has been saying here is, is, is every bit praiseworthy. This is a glorious truth that he has shared, although it does introduce us to a section of scripture that has something to do and speaks often of the idea of Israel's rejection and this kind of thing. Um, now, um, there, there is uh, one other element I'll mention here that ties to something I said earlier, and I'm going to end with this today. Uh, the idea of, uh, of recognizing both the sovereignty of God and election and foreknowledge and all these ideas, but there is also the very legitimate, and I, I try to make sure I say it that way all the time, the legitimate responsibility of man to respond to the call of God. Um, again, this is a point of real debate and discussion when it comes to Reformed theology and non-Reformed believers and this kind of thing. But I, I do believe that one of the things that we see throughout uh, Romans uh, 9 through 11, but also in places like Romans 1 and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, the idea that man has a legitimate responsibility to respond. As a matter of fact, the the way that Paul lays out much of his case has to do with the underlying idea that Israel can come to believe, that they need to come and believe in this kind of thing. So, um, matter of fact, that at one point, he'll even make the, uh, the point that Gentiles, one of the reasons why Gentiles got saved or, or were saved by God, you know, ultimately came to salvation through the finished work of Christ, was in order to provoke Israel to jealousy, that they might come to believe. And so that's a very interesting idea, and we'll come to that later on as we make our way through these few chapters. So anyway, so, um, um, you know, I can't help but be humbled and moved when I consider the love that Paul has for the lost, in particular his, his countrymen Israel, those who should know better but did not during that period of time. We do recognize um, that uh, there will come a point when Paul will describe this, when uh, God will fulfill his promise to save national ethnic Israel. Uh, it'll turn out to be a remnant of Israel, 
Uh, Zechariah chapter 13 seems to imply that after the Great Tribulation, there will be a third of Israel left that goes ultimately into the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, but, But God will be faithful to fulfill that promise to his people, even though many would end up rejecting him all the way to the very end. So, that being said, uh, something of an introduction uh, into Romans chapters 9 through 11. I'd encourage you to go ahead and read through those chapters. Uh, We're not going to race through it. We're going to take our time, and so we'll be in it for a little while as we make our way through it. Of course, we do these verse-by-verse studies, which I deeply, deeply love. Let me just say, uh, in closing here, that, um, you know, and I've kind of said this before, but I, I just thought I'd bring it up again for any who might be new with this. Uh, if you have followed our channel uh, or you follow even our church services, our live streams and that, you know that we uh, put a heavy emphasis on teaching verse by verse, uh, making our way through the scripture uh, a verse at a time, context by context, all the way through, uh, with the intention that we would not only know the word of God, but by so doing, if I can borrow from Alistair Begg, not only know the word of God, but know the God of the word as a result. And so we do that. Uh, we also talk about lots of other things. We do topical uh, subjects, uh, um, whether having to do with the gospel or some other element of the Christian faith. We talk about prophecy a lot on this channel, too. That's a, a topic we cover pretty regularly uh, in our prophecy briefs. Uh, we also do Q&As. We answer questions. And by the way, someone asked if we were going to do another live Q&A. We will do that again at some point, too. Um, I just uh, had not thought about it for a little bit, and so, but uh, thanks for reminding me. We will do that again. Um, so we talk about a number of different things, and uh, you know, some things are, uh, some topics are very, very. Uh, people have a lot of interest in them. Things like prophecy, we tend to see a lot of interest in those. Um, but I will tell you that I, uh, uh, as I, as I do from time to time, there's nothing that brings me greater joy than simply going through the Word of God verse by verse. And so we we try not to spend too much time away from that. And so um, sometimes we'll string a few Roman studies together. Other times we'll do one, do a few other things, come back to it. But we always do come back to it because I think for believers, there's uh, nothing as nourishing for us as just going to God's word and studying it and digesting it, letting it have its impact on us. The word of God, is, as uh, Isaiah tells us in chapter 55, does not return void, but it ultimately accomplishes the purpose that God sets it forth to do. So I so appreciate you joining in, listening, watching, and coming along the journey as we make our way through God's word uh, and as we talk about all these other things as well. So thanks again for joining. Very glad to be uh, with you on this on this trip. So Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that as we continue to study it, that it would continue to hit its mark in our hearts, that it like seed and in, uh, in, in ground that has been broken up, ready to receive the seed, it would, it would bear tremendous fruit, um, all the way up to even a hundredfold. Let it just be richly received and responded to. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have, uh, purposed and planned in your, uh, in your scheme of things, uh, ultimately to make the way in Christ for people lost like us to be able to come and be saved and to have a, 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 a completely glorious um, future that lies ahead. Uh, Lord, this is such a beautiful thing for us to consider. But Father, at the heart of it all uh, is not the streets of gold. It's not um, the heavenly city, the, the new Jerusalem. The, it, that's not all that it is. Really, uh, we are so thankful that above all things, we'll get to be with you. 
And this is the longing of our hearts. This is what our hearts cry out for. And as we are surrounded by a world that is moving ever further away from you, uh, Lord, it just deepens our longing to be with you. We thank you that ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. And one day we will go back, uh, well, not back, obviously we've not been there, but we'll ultimately get to go home. And we thank you for this, this wonderful privilege, this great and living hope. And it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that he took our sin all upon himself. He who knew no sin took our sin upon himself on our behalf and ultimately gave us his righteousness. How we thank you for this. Lord, we don't deserve this. We've done nothing to earn it. Uh, But Father, you have just demonstrated your deep love and grace in bestowing it upon us. So we love you and praise you for this. We pray that, God, you would guide our times together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and would help us to understand your word. And uh, and again, not just know it in our heads, but let it sink deep into our hearts and let it find uh, just uh, rich, open, ready, prepared ground to receive it. Thank you, Lord. We love you and praise you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.